I'm Carmen. And I'm Joanna. And we want to introduce you to our podcast, Live, Laugh, Murder. On our podcast, I, Carmen, tell my co-host, Joanna, say hey. Hey, girl. I tell her a story, and it is not always true crime. We are true crime with a twist. With a twist, like a twist. Got it. The twist here is that sometimes the stories I tell Joanna are true crime, and sometimes they are the plot of a creepy movie. So listen in and join us as we tease Joanna to see if she can figure out which is which, because she is not the creepy movie buff or the true crime enthusiast. Nope. And can you figure it out as well? Yeah. So that's us. Join us. Live, Laugh, Murder podcast, and we love you. You won't be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. Hi, everybody. I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And we are True Crime B&B, and we're back for... Week 29. Yay! Okay. Yeah. I don't have anything to throw out there before we get started today, do you? Pretty basic week. We're both no coffee. Our Keurig broke. Yes. Just a heads up to everybody. So if we sound a little bit under the weather, it's because we are uncaffeinated today. We're not sick. We're just half alive. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Well, then I'm going to go ahead and go first this week. All right. I will apologize in advance. I have another story this week that is not from the U.S. and it takes place in Europe. So a lot of the names and pronunciations, I tried to look up the phonetic pronunciation and stuff, mm-hmm. but... I am probably still going to Americanize the hell out of it, and I'm very sorry. <laughs> but without further ado, I will go ahead and start. All right. Nicole Vandenhoek was born July 4th, 1980 in Erkelenz, Germany. Okay. It's a very small town. All right. To a single mother named Angelica, and she didn't know who Nicole's father was. Okay. Her mother had really tough mental health issues throughout her entire early life, but eventually they did a blood test when Nicole was about one or two years old and found out that her biological father was somebody that lived in their town who was a married man and didn't want anything to do with her. Well, that's uh, a little bit inconvenient. Bummer. Yeah. So he had no part in her life, but he is on her birth certificate now. Okay. Right after Nicole was born, her mother Angelica started dating another man by the name of Ad Vandenhoek. Her mother met and started dating Ad, and after two years of dating him when Nicole was about two, they ended up getting married. And that became her stepfather, and that's why Nicole now has the last name Vandenhoek. All right. Her new stepfather also had a son from a previous marriage named Andy. So Andy was about five years older than Nicole. He was born in 1975. Got it. When Nicole was three years old, the family of four moved to the Netherlands, which is where her stepfather and Odd was from. Unfortunately, their parents ended up getting a divorce in 1989, so the marriage didn't last very long. But then there was a custody battle because her mom was dealing with severe mental health issues and could barely take care of herself. So Odd, being basically the only father she's ever had, decided to go to court and get custody of Nicole and keep her with her brother. Okay. So he won the custody battle, and after that, she was separated from her mom, never saw her again. In April of 1995, her mom committed suicide when Odd remarried later on. Oh, wow. So just a backstory to the whole family going on here. Okay. That was April 1995. October 6, 1995, Nicole is now 15 years old, and she is living in the Netherlands still with her stepbrother and her stepfather's mother. So her paternal grandmother, basically. Where is Odd? He worked in music and touring, so he would take certain seasons, okay, the fall season, and then go around yeah. touring with the band or whatever he was working through. Yeah. So those were road months. Yeah, so she stayed with his mother during that time. 
Got it. All and right. And her stepbrother. All right, I'm with you. They were living in a city of Eindhoven in the Netherlands, and she had gotten a job just recently at a bakery in a local shopping center. So she would go to school during the day, and then after school, she'd go home, get ready, change into her uniform, and then go back to the bakery. And you know how it is in Europe. A lot of people don't have cars for a long time because it is so travelable by walking or biking and stuff like that. And public transit. Mm Mm-hmm. So she had a bike that was hers, and that's her transport mode everywhere she would go. Right. That day on October 6, 1995, she got home from school, changed into her work uniform, hopped on her bike, and left to go to work. When she didn't make it to work that day, apparently she was always on time, like a stickler for it. She was known to be very reliable. This was out of the ordinary. So when it became 15 minutes past her start time and the baker noticed she never showed up, he immediately called the police. And that's one thing in the story that I think is so different than America, where everybody took it seriously a minute something seemed wrong. He didn't try to call her house first? He immediately called the police? No, he literally called the police and then called her grandmother. That's wild. Yeah, so the police got on this right away. They searched the entire area and found nothing until about 6 p.m. that evening when they found her bike next to the River Domo. They, of course, decided to go diving and, like, fish out through the river and make sure she's not down there hurt or something like that first. Mm -hmm. And, again, nothing else came up. That was all took place on October 6th till October 19th when her backpack was found still in the River Domo, but it was at the canal in Eindhoven. Okay. Then finally, on November 22nd, Nicole's body was found Mm. in the woods between two bordering towns. It was just like a hiker happened to stumble upon her. And so, of course, the whole town was just heartbroken. Because she hasn't had enough bad things happen. Yeah, and a lot of them were like, well, she probably ran away. She's been troubled. Her mom had mental illness and all that stuff. And her stepdad was like, I know my daughter. She may not be biologically mine, but... I've raised this child, and she is not going to run away. She wasn't like that. And so her autopsy was performed, and it showed that she had been raped. She also had two jaw fractures, beating injuries to the head and fingers, and finally was stabbed once in the ribs, which was the cause of death. Oh, wow. You have to really hit somebody hard to break their jaw. I know. Unless they, like, knocked her off her bike or something like that and fell. You know what I mean? Maybe. That was my kind of... Maybe. theory based on that but brutal yeah. so police began investigating everybody near her including her co-workers all of her friends from school all of the people that lived around her her family and everybody came up clean except for some reason they started really honing in on her stepdad ad okay and but, nobody knows why because but he was home at this time he was not that's why she was staying with the grandmother so it doesn't make sense right at the time nicole was 15 her stepbrother andy was 20 they thought maybe the Andy and the dad had come up with this together to do something to her. Yeah, because that's something fathers and sons do all the Especially time together. It's literally raised as your sister for your yeah. entire life. It's not like, oh, our parents got married when we were 25 and now it's weird. So anyway, they decided to arrest Odd and Andy. And unfortunately for the police, they cleared them both because they had nothing to do with this and had to let them go. Well, because I'm happy they that no they were evidence. cleared because in the U.S. they might have had a good chance of going to prison anyway. Another red herring came about when a family friend named Celine was arrested just a few months after Nicole's death for drug trafficking and stated that the man that she was working under and trafficking drugs for had something to do with Nicole's death. Oh, okay. And he lived in the same town. It wouldn't be that far off for him to be like, oh, there's a pretty girl. I could probably get to work for me. 
So, of course, they started taking her seriously and following up on that clue, and turns out she was lying the whole time. Just wanted to get some time off on her oh, sentence, because whatever. Yeah, I bet some time got added on to your sentence for lying. Well, and lost all of her family friends, too. So. Seriously. Wow. Yeah. After this, the police had zip, nada, nothing left to even explore. And again, DNA wasn't a thing yet, at least not in this small town in the Netherlands. So they didn't have anything else to go off of, and her case just went cold and put on the back burner until further evidence could come about. In 2004, it was handed off to a cold case detective team, but again, they found nothing to get them any closer. And at this point, her brother Andy is getting kind of pissed. Yeah. Nobody's taking my sister's death seriously. Nobody's even looking into it anymore. The only people you really looked at was me. It was me, and I know for a fucking fact I didn't, so... Yeah. Finally, he'd had enough, and in 2011, the story was revitalized in the press yet again when Nicole's stepbrother Andy, who was now 36 and lived in England, turned himself into the police. Right before he went and turned himself into the police, he made a post on Facebook saying, I will be arrested today for the murder of my sister. I confessed. We'll get in contact soon. And that's it. Okay. So now everybody's in a flurry. Now they're talking about it. Yeah, and they're confused. 20 years later, you're just going to come forward and be like, oh yeah, I did it. Like, Yeah, they're confused just like I am right now. Yeah. Andy was arrested on March 8th, 2011 for his sister's murder. Again, police had no physical evidence. All they had at this point was his confession that he had done this. So they had no choice except to let him go after five days. The court basically ruled that without any physical evidence on him, they couldn't charge him. He might just be having a mental break and confessing. They don't know why he's confessing at this point. So it seems that they got rid of the semen. Kind of said we were going to come back to that. It seems like either it got misplaced or they just didn't think it important enough to keep it solidly for a long time. So they didn't have it anymore. However, police decided now that Andy has confessed... They're going to find evidence. Whether he did this or not, they're going to. Yeah. They decided to go ahead and exhume Nicole's remains in September of 2011. Okay. So her brother was arrested March 8th, 2011. Finally, they had to let him go, and then they exhumed her remains in September that year. However, once they did and collected further samples from her body, they were all shocked that nothing came back matching Andy at all. They had found the DNA of three other men on her at the time. Oh, wow. So that explains the brutal beating that she got. Kind of. Not really. We think only one of these men did it. So I have a quote from Andy right after this news came out, and he went and spoke to the press, and he said, I wanted to get her exhumed and the DNA off of her. So I kind of set myself up, and it could have gone horribly wrong. To get her exhumed, I had to put steps in place to get her exhumed, and went to the police and said I did it. Wow. Good for him. It's real sneaky, and it's really sad he had to go to such lengths. Because he's right. I feel like anywhere in America you did that, you'd be going down for it. You wouldn't be like, oh, well, now I drew attention. It'd be like, well, you're locked up. Now we don't have to keep looking. Well, if you were a rich guy, you wouldn't. But if you were a person of color or a poor person. If you were a rich guy, you could just pay some poor person to go do it for you. Yeah. The three samples they found. Of course, now they have CODIS and different things that they can work with that have people who have been arrested for stuff like this before on file. Right, One of the samples came back, and it was Nicole's boyfriend at the time. 
so another 15-year-old, they had been having sex. Not a big deal. He was totally cleared at the time. He had another job in another city. He wasn't there at the time. That makes sense why his semen was found around her body somewhere. Okay. And so they kind of said, okay, we can mark that sample off. And then they found one of an unknown man, even to this day, no clue who this unknown person is. Could be an accomplice, could just be random. All right. The third sample came back to a man who they cannot release because Netherlands is one of the places where they don't release the full name of the person. Until they've been convicted? Not even after conviction. Really? Yeah, still all this time later they haven't released Holy his full crap. name. Holy crap. That all doesn't seem safe. I know it doesn't. So all they released of this man's name was his first name starts with J-O-S, middle name D-E, last name G. Joe's D-G. That's all they'll tell us about him. All right. This man, however, now 46 years old in 2011, had served time for three other rapes in the area. He'd been convicted and served time. Wow. And even at some point when he wasn't learning his lesson after the third time, they sent him to a psychological kind of detention center for preventative detention is what they called it in order to try to get him help and get to the root of why he's been doing this so often. This man, who I'm just going to call DG, at the time in 1995 when Nicole had gone missing and been murdered, the exact day, October 6, 1995, he had gotten into a huge fight and had stormed out of his girlfriend's house and disappeared. She didn't see him for the rest of the day, which is all these years later, if she still remembers that fight and the exact day of that fight, must have been a fucking hell of a fight. Oh, yeah. Because she remembered, yeah, he never came home that day and I was furious with him for that. Yeah. So she came forward and told the police that. He didn't have an alibi, so they decided to take him to court, because now they have this semen on this young woman, and then they also have him being absent and furious at a woman on that day, so. Right. November 21st, 2016, Jos DG was found guilty of rape, receiving five years on that charge, and unfortunately, because the third unidentifiable sample, they couldn't 100% say that this Jost man had done this. Well, maybe he had sex with her and then somebody else came along and raped her and killed her. You don't have any proof that he did this. Yeah, so he that's did, true. He got acquitted of manslaughter for that reason. 2018, the prosecution began an appeal against the acquittal. And on October 9th, 2018, it was overturned and he was officially sentenced to 12 additional years for manslaughter. So now he's got 17 years in prison for this. It's still not very much for killing somebody. I know. A lot of people don't think it's justice. Her family certainly doesn't. And all of that came about just because her brother never gave up. And this is the part where I was like, my stomach dropped when I read this. Because I really thought it was happy enough of an ending. Yeah, because at least somebody got caught. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I actually found this by accident. I went to his Facebook page where all of his posts when he turned himself in were. Right. And yeah. it's now a memorial page. Oh no, what happened to him? In a heartbreaking final chapter of the story, it has been revealed that Andy Van Den Herk took his life in his England home September 2nd, 2021. Wow. Wow. So it's just all around. It's just one of those stories that goes to show you killing one person. It kills more people than that. I mean, it just devastates a family to have that happen. But good for the brother. Good for him because... No, and I'll, I want to... I have pictures of him I'll post to just to memorialize him a little bit because that was a good thing he did. Yeah, it was a very good thing he did. And it was brave because, you know, if the police had decided we're going to plant some evidence or whatever. Luckily, Netherlands one of those places where I feel like they're a little bit more just... <laughs> a lot of the Maybe world a little, is. Maybe a little less of that rigmarole mm-hmm. going on. Yeah. My story's in Australia. I've been in Australia a lot. 
since yeah. we started this podcast. I, I kind of love it. I don't know why I'm always there, but nevertheless, this is in Brisbane, Australia. Rachel Moore met Daryl Fields in Brisbane, Australia and fell in love with him. He was kind to her. He was gentle. He was patient. For seven years, they built a life together. His sweetness towards Rachel's children was known by all who knew him, and he was a really loving partner, a loving stepfather to the kids, a good listener, and they were a very happy family. But suddenly, after seven years, he began changing. He had erupted in a fury of domestic violence towards Rachel, and having experienced domestic abuse in a previous relationship once was more than enough. Mm -hmm. This was now 2014, and Rachel told Daryl he had to leave. She wanted her children to be exposed to a healthy relationship, and she swore she was not going to live with the threat of violence in their lives or in hers. She looked them in the face and promised this was not going to be part of their lives. So the first two years of their separation went smoothly and amicably. Rachel had all five of the children and raised them on her own. Three of the oldest children, Jaden, Cameron, and Kaylee, wanted to be child actors. Part of their acting classes involved martial arts and fight choreography, so that they would be able to take on acting roles that other children wouldn't be mm-hmm. equipped to. Get your leg up in the game. Right. That's, well, most children aren't going to know how to do that, so they're not qualified to pursue those types mm-hmm. of roles. This little family had a routine. They would get home, she would turn on the TV for them while she got dinner ready, and then they would eat and spend time together, do bath time, and everyone would go to bed. Mm-hmm. Until April 11th, 2014, on what started as a normal night, as usual, Rachel got the kids in the house, went about their evening routine, And she was about to start running baths for them. She was a little bit on edge this evening, though, because all through the day, she had been receiving phone messages from Daryl, and they had made her have some fears for her and the children's safety. So she was feeling really just edgy and antagonized, and she wasn't feeling good about it. Do you know if he was like, they were threatening, or were they just, hey, we need to talk? Like They didn't reveal what the messages said, Okay, but I would suspect that they were somewhat threatening. And anybody who's going to contact you after abusing you of any kind is going to put something in your, like a lump in your throat for the day, you know? Yeah. I get it. So, yes. <laughs> so now, at the house, her ears picked up an unusual sound outside as someone's car came screeching into the driveway. Well, she's already on edge. But she immediately knew that it was going to be Daryl, based on the messages she had already been getting. And knowing that nothing good was going to come of Daryl flying up towards the house in this kind of a fury, she quickly ushered the children back into a bedroom to keep them all together and as far away from him as possible. Rachel was already assuming the worst. And based upon what she had already experienced in her life, the worst is not something you can really assess until it happens. Hmm? But what she did know was that this attack was going to be worse than the first one. They always get worse, she said. Hmm. But her worst fears of what might be about to happen didn't come close to what happened that night. Hoping to protect her children, Rachel went back to the bedroom to take cover with her children. Jaden Caulfield, 14. Cameron Caulfield, age 12, Kaylee Caulfield, age 10, Zane Caulfield, age 4, and Samantha Caulfield, age 2. Kaylee, the 10-year-old, said she heard the stomping of, of their stepfather's feet as he navigated through the house looking for the family. She was afraid because he was acting very scary, and even at 10, she knew what he had done the first time that caused him to be thrown out. All six of them waited, all five children and the mom, knowing that he would soon be entering the room that they were all in together. As Daryl burst open the door of the bedroom, his face was that of a psychopath. He tilted his head back and forth, side to side, looking at Rachel as a predator eyes its prey. 
prey kind of, you know, that thing where they just keep the eyes straight at you, but their heads rotating side to side. Unhinged. Weird, yeah. She said he didn't look at all like himself. His eyes were black and dead, and she barely recognized the man that was staring at them. Daryl was extremely intoxicated, and once he had set off looking for Rachel, he'd become nothing short of homicidal. He was in a blind rage, and he wanted Rachel dead. He stood in the door of the bedroom, coldly staring at them, and then pulled up a gun, which he pointed at Rachel. He stood there, with Rachel feeling the terror of waiting to be shot, and knew he was going to kill her. She knew she was going to be shot, and that she had to be the one that got that bullet. So she told the kids to get away from her. The older children got the younger ones out of the line of fire. The children were crying, pleading, begging him, don't do it, daddy. But he coldly said to them that they don't have a daddy anymore. When he cocked the gun and callously pulled the trigger, Daryl didn't hesitate at all. As soon as she was shot, Rachel just fell backwards. He had aimed for her chest, but she had flinched slightly as he pulled the trigger, so she moved just enough and it hit her in the shoulder, her upper left arm and her shoulder area. Mm -hmm. And that shoulder and arm was just utterly shattered. And she was losing tons of blood. Yeah, you got major arteries up there. Yeah. At first, she didn't really understand that she'd been shot. She only felt the impact, not the total destruction. Kind of like James Porritt with the machete. Yeah. He knew he was being hit, but he didn't quite understand what he was being hit with. So she tried to raise back up, but not only did her left arm offer nothing. I mean, it wouldn't do anything because everything was just destroyed in there she was in shock she was losing blood and the floor was so slippery from her blood that she couldn't even use her right arm to push herself back up again so she couldn't get upright and she's just laying there on the floor 12 year old Cameron later in an interview stated that once his mother had been shot he was afraid not only that she might die but that this could be the end of his whole family he feared for the lives of his brothers and sisters I mean all shoved together in there in a tiny room it's like a school shooting almost yeah it's just horrifying well he was hunting them right yeah they're sitting ducks at this point yeah Mm. so cameron didn't think through what happened next his instincts and martial arts and fight choreography training just took over to do whatever was necessary but he wasn't going to let this be the end Mm -hmm. so despite the natural terror that everyone in that room felt Cameron raced forward as Daryl was reloading his weapon and elbowed his stepfather in the stomach and actually managed to take the gun away from him. Dang. Disarming Daryl, who was twice his size, in the video that I watched with this little family, he was a small 12-year-old. He was not a big kid. This is not one of those six-foot-tall 12-year-olds. So disarming Daryl, who was twice his size, using a technique that Cameron had just been taught two weeks earlier, his bravery had now set the rest of the children into motion. Wow. Only two weeks? I literally thought, oh, he's been doing this for five years. (laughs) He's clearly been paying attention in class. This kid's going places. Seriously. He then had the presence of mind to take the gun that he had just disarmed from his stepfather take it outside and hide it under the porch so that Daryl couldn't just pick it back up again and finish reloading and shoot everyone. Mm-hmm. Jaden, the oldest child, he's 14, took over the defense while Cameron was gone, finding some strength that he never even knew that he had, both physical strength and courage. Daryl had lost his weapon, but now he had dragged Rachel across the room by one foot. He was sitting his body weight on her and he put his hands around her neck, began choking her, He was trying to gouge her eyes out. Jaden climbed on Daryl's back and choked and punched him to get him off of his mother and prevent him from hurting her any more than she already was because they already thought their mom could very easily die from all the blood loss. 
Just then, Cameron returned after hiding the weapon and punched Daryl in the temple, knocking this big man over on top of Jaden. So now Jaden was trapped under this much larger man. He couldn't get out, but while he was down there, he put Daryl into a chokehold until Daryl passed out. Oh. All during this, all of this crap going on in this little bedroom, Zane, only four years old, knew he couldn't do anything to help the bigger kids. Mm-hmm. But he also knew someone needed to protect his little two-year-old sister, Samantha. So completely on his own, he got Samantha down on the floor and pushed her underneath the bed and made her stay under the bed up against the wall until it was safe to come out. Kaylee, the 10-year-old girl, took this opportunity while the two older boys were neutralizing Darrow to somehow, with strength far beyond her size or her years, help her half-conscious mother get up off the floor, out of the room, and to escape the house. She wisely wrapped cloth around her mother's destroyed arm in an attempt to slow down the bleeding from the gunshot wound. Although Kaylee's a normal kid and she said that she found all the blood to be super scary and disgusting, she knew what needed to be done to help her mom survive until help mm-hmm. could arrive because she needed to stop the bleeding. Kaylee also called the police, but when the dispatcher didn't take her message of send help, my mom's been shot, Seriously, I mean, she calls, she says, send help, my mom's been shot. And the dispatcher said something to her like, okay, so tell me what's going on. You're talking to her like a little kid. And these kids are badass kids and they're saving. Yeah, my mom's been shot. Yeah, why do you not just say, okay, let me send the police and and an ambulance right now. Yeah, it's not like, oh, I think mommy's not waking up. That it's like, okay, is she just sleeping and you just... (laughs) have annoyed her to the point of putting in earplugs or is she not waking up? Exactly. So they didn't take her seriously because she was a little girl. So she handed the phone over to Jaden to relay a more detailed message and kind of convey the emergency that was going on. But Kaylee knew that it was going to take a while for the ambulance to arrive, so she tended to her mother as best she could until there was an ambulance to take her mom to the hospital. Cameron, now that dad is passed out or whatever. I don't know exactly what's going on with him. I know that they knocked him out, but I don't know if he was still unconscious. Maybe he was so drunk that he literally passed out. But Cameron kept running up and down the long driveway to check for the ambulance or the police or anybody that might happen along the road who would be able to help to even keep Daryl from getting up and attacking them again. comes back too. Yeah. Over and over, he made the run down and then back up to check on the rest of his family. Finally, on one of his trips down to the road, he saw the help arriving. He said that he directed them to where his mother was, assured them that he had disarmed Daryl, and told them where the gun was. <laughs> and he was so frustrated because they wanted to just keep asking him questions, and they wouldn't let him go back up to his mom. Mm-hmm. Because he's so terrified for her. He just wants to go up and see that she's being taken care of. But unfortunately, he wasn't able to see his mom again for two more weeks. Rachel was rushed to the hospital in critical condition. She had lost two-thirds of her blood. She would have lost more had it not been for Kaylee, who had tightly wrapped the bandages to try to slow down the blood loss. That first few days at the hospital, Rachel died and was brought back five times. Five? Five times. She came very near to losing her left arm, which has been reconstructed now like a patchwork quilt. She's had 36 complex surgeries to regain the chance for even limited functionality of the left hand and arm. But she may never be completely out of the woods because a lot can go wrong with a completely reconstructed limb. You know, you can lose blood flow, you could get an infection, etc. So it could still someday be a possibility that the doctors might need to amputate that arm. Mm -hmm. But 
for now, I think that she's doing okay. I don't believe she's got her full mobility back in that hand, though. She spent weeks in the hospital, but even after as much physical healing as she's achieved, she, along with all the children, still struggled with the fact that someone they had loved, respected, and admired could have turned into such a terrifying and cruel person. Rachel said that alcohol is what changed Daryl and pushed out the good man that he used to be. Jaden misses the days of building things together with Daryl in the backyard. Kaylee grieves for the days when he was nice and fun and would take them places. The whole family suffers a collective fear that they experience every night, a form of PTSD. Rachel's greatest sadness is that her sweet, wonderful children had their carefree innocence of youth stolen from them by this terrible act of someone they truly loved. The children lost the man that they thought would always love and take care of them. She tries to help them understand that although jealousy fueled by alcohol is what drove Daryl to violence, and that he did in fact love them, but she also wants them to never mistake violence for love, to never accept it as appropriate in their relationships. Mm -hmm. So that night of terror is still in their minds and is an act that none of them will ever truly understand. But for now, they are starting to heal knowing that Daryl Fields pled guilty to attempted murder, common assault, and contravention of a domestic violence order Mm-hmm. which had just been filed a couple weeks prior to this. And ultimately, he was sentenced in 2016 to 12 years in prison, which doesn't seem like enough no. for practically destroying a family. He will be eligible for parole sometime in 2026 after 80% of his sentence has been served. But Rachel was very disappointed and disgusted when she attended court for Daryl's hearing. She thought he might show sorrow and regret, but he didn't. He looked over at her and laughed. He laughed? He laughed. After what he did to her, and he laughed. And here I was thinking, oh, well, now he's going to jail, he'll be sober and, like, whatever. But thinking, oh, he'll probably regret that when he's sober. Clearly not. Yeah, clearly not. Well, somehow he made himself the victim, right? Oh, yeah. That's what they do. That's what they do. Poor (laughs) you. On a positive note, Jaden and Cameron were each awarded a star of courage. I know, for selflessly putting themselves in jeopardy to protect the lives of the others. Kaylee and Zane were each awarded bravery medals for their actions to protect Rachel and Samantha. Poor little Samantha didn't get anything because she was only two and hid under the bed. They were all brave. I mean, there's just no... Even the little two-year-old, what could she do to help, you know? so I mean, that two-year-old's been through more than we have in our entire lives, you know? Yeah. So, Jesus. Of his award, Jaden said... I'm hoping to use the award to shine a light on other children and to motivate them so that they know they are allowed to speak up if they are in a domestic violence situation. The family regularly make a point to talk about what happened so that they can make the memory less raw and to process their experiences. And as the children work through the emotional trauma, they can take great confidence in the actions that they took on that terrible night. If not for Jaden, Cameron, and Kaylee, Rachel Moore would not be alive. And she's so proud of how they handled themselves. So proud of their bravery and their instincts to do the right thing and so grateful for what amazing children she has. And personally, I think the world is a much better place with Rachel and these five sweet kids in it. So I salute Rachel for being a wonderful mother and just setting an amazing example for them. And to follow up, if you want to see this family tell their story in their own words, you can find 60 Minutes Australia did an episode on the family. Oh, okay. The date on it on YouTube is December 31st, 2019. Oh, okay. So I just love this family, and I just send them all the good vibes. Those kids need to work for the special forces or something. They're just amazing kids, and I can't imagine 
how they could have had such presence of mind and so much courage. I mean, they did stuff that most grown adults wouldn't be able to do. Actually, Rachel said that in that video that I just mentioned from 60 Minutes Australia. She said, what they did, I could not have done. And I mean, if you're, if your kids were in danger, you probably would have done it. But she didn't feel at the time that she could do it. Mm-hmm. But she was afraid to do something and make him matter so that then he would Well, yeah, and she knows once she's down, the kids are next, you know? That's right. And that's just, oh. And I'm really glad that they didn't accidentally, like, end up killing him or something because then they'd have that on their conscience. I'm glad it ended the way it did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I call them the amazing Caulfield kids because they were yeah. just, they're just mind-blowingly amazing to me. They remind me of the Spy Kids movies. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I hated the Spy Kids movies. Oh my God, those kids were such little shits. Yeah. Such little shits. But they saved the world, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> to follow up, True Crime B&B Puss has 61 followers on Instagram. Actually, she got three overnight. Oh, wow. 64 followers. All right, go Puss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she's going to overtake us. She's already overtaking mine. <laughs> but speaking of Instagram... Yeah, you can check us out on all of the platforms, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, at True Crime B&B. Yeah, not TikTok, though, because we don't want to have to look cute. <laughs> and you can send us an email at truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. I think that's it for I now. I think so, too. So I'm sorry for the little bit low energy today. Hopefully our new coffee machine will be here soon and we can have coffee tomorrow maybe in editing we'll add like some horns and like enthusiastic noises to make it more interesting pause (laughs) (laughs) all right that's the end of episode 29 thank you for being here with us today guys we love our crime family and we'll see you next week for episode 30 holy crap yep yep episode 30 coming up thank you bye bye What about the semen? The semen. Sorry for the squeaky chair. Even your chair is crying today. <laughs> I don't know what that <laughs> sound was that just came out of my throat. No. <laughs> 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 Why I'm choked no. up over this. This isn't the bad part yet. But all right, I'll have a little sip. No, don't leave me hanging on this. I'm like, oh no. His instincts and martial arts and acting. <laughs> God damn it. Because it was martial arts and acting. <laughs> martial like, arts? just mean to bring up, Mom. <laughs> All right. The martial arts and acne saved the day. You're going to hyperventilate yourself. Oh, I'll have a drink right now. Maybe we should have had the margaritas before recording today. <laughs> Maybe you better finish reading this. <laughs> uh, Rachel was whisked to the hospital. Whisked? Rachel was rushed to the hospital in critical... <laughs> Snap in your head like don't like that. Oh yeah, uh. I couldn't say it. <laughs> Rachel was with. Damn it. <laughs> well, well there you it. go.